Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The date was March 18th, 1937, and it was just 17 minutes before school was to dismiss for the day in the little town of New London, Texas. Now, this is oil country, and the school board had decided that they needed to save some money. So they would do this by using natural gas siphoned off of one of the oil company's pipelines. Now, this wasn't the worst idea. It would allow them to basically fuel the furnace for free. I mean, that's not bad. Free is good. We like free. So the problem comes in is that natural gas has no odor. You can't smell it at all. And so no one knew that a leak had developed. No one knew that the basement was slowly filling with gas that had escaped from the pipes. And a spark is all that it took, a spark in one of the classrooms, and it ignited such a blast that it lifted the building completely off of its foundation. Sadly, around 300 students and teachers were killed. And one of the regulations that came out of this is now companies must add that odor that you smell to purposely make it stink. And it's not a pleasant smell. But without it, people would never know that they are in danger. Now this morning, I want to talk to you about a part of our inner selves, a part of who God has made us to be, a part of our inside that's kind of like that odor put in natural gas. Now it may not seem that pleasant to us, but it's there for a good reason. It's our conscience. Someone has said that conscience is a mother-in-law whose visit never ends. I like that. Now, that can be good or bad, depending on your given relationship to your mother-in-law. But the question I want to ask you before God is, how is your conscience? My goal for us in Hebrews 10 this morning is to help us all appreciate what God has given us, to use our conscience as God intended Verse 1 begins, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, the Mosaic law could not cleanse the conscience. It couldn't do it. It could not bring people into an intimate, close relationship with God. Why? Because it was never meant to be. It dealt with the externals. Catch what the author says here. He says, the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Shadow. It actually refers in the wording to the outline that an artist makes before he gets to the colors, before he adds the colors in the middle. The image is the finished portrait. The author is telling us something here. He's saying, hey, the law is no more than a preliminary sketch. It's the outer sketch. It it showed the shape of things to come, but the reality itself is not there. 
You see, the sacrifices could never give perfect access to God. They could never cleanse the conscience. The old system, it created awareness of sin, and it created a need for a priest to mediate, and the blood offering of an innocent substitute. Christ and his sacrifice is the image And the law, it's nothing but a shadow. Now, living in the shadow, the people under the law, what could they do? Well, they could look forward. They could actually look forward to the sacrifice of Christ and all that it would provide. Those living under the law by faith could be accepted by God, but that acceptance, it looked forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah because why? The substance is Jesus Christ. Sin could never be done away with under the law. You could never be liberated from the sacrifices and the nagging guilt. And that is where verse 2 comes in. He continues by saying, For then would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible, catch that phrase, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now the people of Israel never had the freedom from sin's guilt that we do. Because every year on the Day of Atonement, it reminded them that another sacrifice was actually needed in order for them to have continued fellowship with God. Praise God, we don't need that reminder because Christ's sacrifice, it made us perfectly accepted by our God. Now, the blood of bulls and goats, it could never take away sins because they are imperfect sacrifices. They can't cleanse a guilty conscience. Otherwise, the person who offered them would only have needed to offer them once, not every year. If they could purify, if they could cleanse the conscience, the sacrifices would have come to an end. The sacrifices served as a reminder of the guilt of sin. It's like the woman who came to her pastor who had done something pretty bad about 15 years before. And her husband had told her, I want you to know that I forgive you completely. And then she added this. And I know he's forgiven me because every single week of my life, he tells me he's forgiven me. Well, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here about the sacrificial system. It was a reminder of their sin, their guilt over and over and over and over again. You see, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement were a reminder every year of their sin. And that is why the Day of Atonement, it wasn't a festive time. This was not a great celebration in that regard. There would be standing room only when it came to the temple. And the animals, they would die right before the people, a constant reminder of the effect of sin. You could see the blood spattered on the clothes of the priests. You could hear the sound of death. You could smell death. You could smell the burning of meat. It all communicated one thing, death. And the people were constantly reminded of what God says about the payment of sin. And the high priest, you remember if you've studied some of this in the Old Testament, as a part of the ceremony, what did he have to do? He had to recite over the head of the scapegoat the sins of the entire nation before it was led away to symbolically bear the sins of the people. You see, the blood of bulls and goats was not meant to take away their sin. It was meant to just cover over it, not to cleanse it like Christ. 
It, it had a benefit. It instructed the people. It illustrated the need for a savior. You see, when Christ gave us life, our sins were purged. And we now stand as Christians, as believers in Christ, in a perfect acceptance before God. That is our position in Christ. The conscience has been cleansed. The guilt has been taken away, removed, because what we needed was the permanent, powerful, and sin-destroying forgiveness that is only available through Jesus Christ. And now for believers, when we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, we need to think of it never again because Christ has forgiven us and that sin no longer exists. Take a businessman who goes to a banker and he asks for a loan and a wealthy friend comes alongside of him and backs up that loan in case it fails. But the first year doesn't go so well. So the businessman, he goes back after the first year and he asks for an extension and a further line of more credit. And then a new promissory note is drawn up and the old debt is just added right in. And then the debt is carried forward another year. And this goes on and on and on. And every year the loans just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the man gets further in debt. And every year when he goes into the bank, he's reminded of his debt. The only thing keeping him afloat is the promise of his rich friend. And this is exactly what happened in the Old Testament. You see, the animal sacrifices were promissory notes. But every year, the Hebrew people acknowledged the debt of their sin on the Day of Atonement. Each sacrifice carried with it the endorsement of the Son of God, who guaranteed he would pay in full the debt of the sinner. But the time came when those debts had to be discharged, which is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for us when he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. It's not possible, the writer says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Only to just kick that can down the road one more year. But that endless system of blood got old. Verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. O God. Now, the reference here to the book in, in Hebrews is the Old Testament. And the animal sacrifices could not get rid of the guilt of man, but the blood of Jesus Christ, it can. The sacrifice of Christ, once for all, put away sin. And the author is quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where David actually was prophesying that the Messiah would commit to offer his body as a sacrifice for sin because the animal sacrifices continued to be insufficient. Now, Christ fulfilled the prophecies of Psalm 40, not David. Psalm 40, if you're tracking with me, it contains an interesting little phrase in the Hebrew. Verse 6 says this. It says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But look at that end part of that. It says, my ears you have opened. And the author of Hebrews, he changes it a little bit. And he's, he was using the Septuagint. Some of you know what that is. That's the Greek Old Testament. And the translators of the Greek Old Testament understood this figure of speech that God actually put holes inside of our heads. 
God gave us these things, these ears, so that we could hear his word. And if he has our ear, then he also has our entire body, our whole being, which is why our translations back in our text in Hebrew say, but a body you have prepared for me. God had a body prepared for the son. You see, the Old Testament prophets had warned Israel many, many times. You see it all throughout that the sacrifices alone would not please God. Meaning this, the thoughtless repetition of sacrifices that does nothing. God wanted more. He wanted their hearts. He wanted obedience. God is the one who gave his people the sacrifices. But outward mindless rituals with little thought given is not what God wanted then, and it's not what he wants now. What is he looking for? He's looking for that contrite, broken heart before him when God's people worship him. Now, God wants his people perfected. He wants them cleansed, something that the animal sacrifices could not do. The animals certainly didn't have a choice, did they? But Christ did. He offered his life for us. Verse 7 in your text, still the words of Psalm 40. These were powerful prophetic words about Christ where he would actually say, and you remember this from the Gospels, he would say, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. They sum up perfectly the entire ministry of the Son, giving God the true sacrifice that he desires. Now Christ, he came to this earth with a passion to do the will of the Father in heaven. Hebrews is telling us something. It's telling us that you're more sinful than you dared to ever believe, but you're also more loved by a holy God than you ever dared to hope. Since 2006, a group of people celebrate an event around the new year in New York City. It's called Good Riddance Day. And people write down anything they want. It can just be simply a bad memory you have, something you don't want in your life anymore. But what they do is they set up this gigantic shredder where you can write down anything that you want, something you want to get rid of, and then just put it in the shredder. I like this part. They actually take a sledgehammer out. Now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere. And they, they use it if you want to smash that old cell phone or, or a computer that just needs to be put out of its misery that's probably still running Windows 95. And one of the organizers said this. They said, it is really this need we have, even when the world is so crazy, to say, you know what? I'm going to let go of the things that have been dragging me down and going to look forward with a sense of hope and the possibility of change. See, here's the point. Even the lost world can see how guilt weighs you down. Even the lost see the need to start new, to have that slate wiped clean. But apart from Jesus Christ, the thing is, they're powerless to change for God's glory, powerless to have their guilt taken away. And that was the same for us before Christ, same for the Hebrew people. And so the author, he continues in verse eight, and he says, previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all. Now here, the author is, is explaining to us Psalm 40. That's the reason it repeats verse 8. 
And the author tells us that Christ said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. This he did three times in the garden, shortly before the cross. And verse 9 is just simply telling us that God took away the first so that he could establish the second. God took away the Mosaic law, the Levitical sacrificial system, so that Jesus Christ could die. Takes away here, abolishes. The imperfect sacrifices of the Levitical system have been abolished so that the perfect sacrifice of the Son could impart true life to us. No believer in Christ living now in the church age is under any obligation to follow the Mosaic law that was given for Israel. Believers in verse 10, we've been sanctified or set apart, meaning we've been separated from our sins, set apart by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, this is your position in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, this is how God sees you. This is your position in Christ, how God sees us, not always how we live. Why? Because sometimes our condition does not match our position. Five different offerings were required by the Old Testament law to keep God's people in fellowship with him. But the death of Jesus Christ made all of them no longer needed. Christ didn't come to improve the law and just spit shine that thing and polish it up a little bit. He came to fulfill it. It all pointed to him. So why would you go back to trying to live under the law? Imagine a young man who falls in love, but the man and his girl are separated by distance. And he has a picture of her that he looks at every single day. And finally, this couple gets married and he still holds on to that picture. But now he's also got her. He's married to her. And then one day he starts getting a little strange. He stands before his wife, holding her picture, holding her photo, and says to her, you know, I've really missed your photo, so I'm going to go back to it. And then he starts kissing the picture, and he walks out the door mumbling, oh, how I love you, dear photo. You are everything to me. Now, we would look at that and say, rightly, that this guy's dipstick is reading a quart low. But that illustrates exactly what people do when they abandon Christ for the shadow. You see, anytime someone tries to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, like the Hebrew believers trying to go back to the old Levitical system, it implies something very important. It implies that Christ's sacrifice was not enough to forgive us of our sins. Adding anything to it denies its sufficiency. When you add anything to the cross, you are rejecting his sacrifice. Be on guard against anybody out there today who tells you that Christ's sacrifice is not enough to make you acceptable to God. Let's pick it up in verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, the author of Hebrews is finally on his theological home stretch, if you will. Next week, we're going to see he starts getting into the more of the application section of the book of Hebrews. But he's comparing the Levitical priests with Jesus, our great high priests. 
Now, the Levitical priests, we've talked about this, they stood daily. They never sat down. Why? Because their work was never done. They were always more and more sins to atone for. And these sacrifices, they could never take away the sins. But Christ's single offering removed our sins once for all time. Verse 12 says, this man who, Christ, he sat down after he offered himself as a sacrifice. One sacrifice for sins forever. Memorize that. One sacrifice for sins forever. Christ's sacrifice lasted because it offered a permanent pardon to those who have offended God. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father tells us that his atoning work, it's done, it's finished, it's over. And didn't he as much say so? His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And he meant it. He meant it. A seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. His work of redemption is so complete, he's now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And all that he has to do is wait till his enemies are made his footstool. You see, Christ knew that his death and resurrection would ultimately lead to the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. And this kingdom, it will be established with Jerusalem at the center of his reign. Sitting now in glory at the Father's right hand, the place of highest honor that there is, even the angels must stand in glory. Through Christ, believers have access to unlimited grace, unlimited power. And the Son awaits the Father's appointed time now for His return to establish the earthly Davidic kingdom. And Psalm 110 tells us, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see, Christ is looking back to the cross and he knows that he doesn't need to do it again. He doesn't need to make any more sacrifices. And at the same time, he looks forward to the day that is coming soon when he ushers in his eternal kingdom. Christ has already won the victory. And at the second coming of Christ, the earthly rulers of this world, the Antichrist, and all the demonic forces are going to be removed, setting the stage for him to rule as the king of the earth. Now watch this contrast that we have in the text. His enemies will be removed in verse 13, but his people have been perfected forever. Read verse 14 with me. It says, for by one offering, he has perfected how long? Forever those who are being sanctified. See, as Christians, here's the good news. We have a perfect standing before God because of the finished work of Christ. We have been declared righteous. Christ has set us apart in the past, made us holy. God has perfected us, made us fully acceptable to God. And the sacrifice of our Savior, it has cleansed our conscience from guilt. It has made it possible that we can approach God and that we can worship Him. We are complete in Christ. In our position in Christ, we are actually perfect. Because of Christ, God now sees His people as perfect. That's beautiful. Because Christ's righteousness, it's actually been imputed to us. The Father sees us just as perfect as His Son. He sees us just as holy as His Son. We have been made whole. We have been made complete. Christ has made a relationship possible for us with the Father. And we can approach God with the full acceptance gained through the death of Christ. 
This is the birthright of every believer in Christ. Every believer has a perfect position before God. Let's read our last section of text. It says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The author is just coming to the end of his argument here, and he ends with another quotation of the new covenant, where the new covenant was promised to the people of Israel in Jeremiah 31. And the writer is telling us that the Holy Spirit gave us this witness in the word of God, the witness that the final forgiveness of sins means an end of the sacrifice for sins. When the old covenant was given, the commandments of God, how were they given? They were given on stone tablets, stone tablets. But the day is coming when the new covenant is in effect that God will put his law in their hearts and in their minds. And on that day, his people will walk in perfect obedience with him. And on that day, the author tells us something else will happen. He tells us now here in verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The old covenant had a time each year when they would remember their sins. They would specifically remember their sins. But the introduction of the new covenant, it promises that God remembers our past sin no more. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to somehow get spiritual amnesia and his memory is just going to start failing. It doesn't work like that. He's not going to just forget all the bad things you've done. But it does mean this. It means that God's not going to hold them against you. He's not going to keep bringing them up against you just so he can condemn you. The guilt before God for them has been removed. His judicial forgiveness has been given, meaning God is not going to punish you for them. They've been taken care of at the cross. Because when there is remission of sin, when there is a remission of all our lawless deeds, the pardon has been given and the forgiveness, it is real. In the eyes of God, it is just as if we've never sinned because we've been perfectly accepted by our God. If God has removed and forgiven the sins of a believer in Christ, the Christian does not need to offer any of these animal sacrifices because there's just simply no need. And so he's telling these Hebrew Christians, he's saying the temple system, it could offer them nothing. The priests could offer them nothing. Nothing that the Jewish system offered could have made these believers stand in a better position before a holy and righteous God. See, God's plan was all along to end the Mosaic covenant by introducing the new covenant. And we can look forward to the day when we can walk in perfect obedience with the Savior, when we walk with the Savior in his kingdom. On that day, when our Satan nature has been completely removed, because when his people live in perfect obedience, we will understand more completely once and for all that his forgiveness, it's not just words on a page, his forgiveness is real. The introduction of the new covenant to Israel, it brought a better sacrifice. And here is where the church benefits because we can know his forgiveness of sins. We have the ability to know and access God because our sins have been forgiven. Christians can enter into the real presence of God. You see, any sin that you've confessed to God in the past, leave it there because Christ forgives it completely. 
There's no need to keep bringing it up again and again and again in your mind. Move on and learn to thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God that our sins can be forgiven completely. Do you guys remember the story of Carla Faye Tucker? In 1983, she did a horrible thing. She helped to kill two people with a pickaxe. It was violent. She was so animalistic in her behavior that she actually even laughed while she was doing it. And she was rightly found guilty and imprisoned. And on death row, Carla Faye Tucker became a born-again Christian. Those closest to her all said this, you cannot question the legitimacy of her conversion experience, meaning her testimony for Jesus Christ was strong. Now, she understood she was forgiven by God, and she also understood that sometimes when you sin in this world, there are consequences for that sin that you still have to pay. And she knew that. She got it. Carla Faye Tucker became the first woman executed in Texas since the Civil War. But as she lay strapped on that gurney, she delivered her final message to those who are gathered together to witness this execution and listen to her words. She said this, I'm going to be face to face with Jesus now. I love you all very much. I'll see you all when you get there. See, that's beautiful because she understood that no matter how black your sin, how black and dirty and all the disgusting things that we do as unrighteous people, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse it, cleanse it perfectly and make it white as snow. But what do we do as Christians? We try to let unjustified guilt weigh us down. Have you ever spent much time around someone who has lost a leg or maybe an arm or a hand or a foot? Sometimes they struggle with phantom pain. Phantom pain can linger on and on because somewhere locked in their brain, a memory lingers of a non-existent hand or leg that has been taken. Invisible toes sometimes will feel like they're curling up. Imaginary hands will grasp things. A leg feels so sturdy, a patient may even try to get up and stand on it. Sometimes the pain is so intolerable, a limb that doesn't even exist will cause them just excruciating pain. Now, this happened to an administrator at a medical school by the name of Mr. Warwick. And he had a painful circulation problem in his leg, but he refused, like a lot of guys, he refused to let the doctors do what they needed to do. He refused to allow the recommended amputation. And the pain got worse and worse, and he got bitter, but he would mutter about his leg. He'd walk around and talking about how much he hated it and how much pain he was in. And finally, he told the doctor, he said, I can't stand it anymore. I'm through with that leg. Take it off. And surgery was scheduled immediately. But right before the operation, he asked the doctor, what do you do with legs after they're removed? And he was told that they just incinerate them. And so he had a strange request. He wanted his leg preserved in a big old jar so he could put it up on his mantle. And then he thought his plan was that he would sit in his chair and kind of taunt his leg, that it couldn't hurt him anymore. It was his leg, so they let him do it. But that despised leg had the last laugh because he was one that had terrible phantom pain. Even after it was gone, he could feel the pressure of his leg. He could feel the swelling and the cramping of the muscles. He hated that leg with such intensity that the pain had become lodged permanently in his brain. You see, phantom pain, I believe it gives us 
wonderful insight into something that we as Christians experience. It's guilt that should no longer be there. When we sin against God, when we sin against others, guilt should be there until we confess the sin and restore the relationship. But some Christians can be obsessed by the memory of a sin committed years ago, and it never leaves them, crippling their ministry, their walk with God, and their relationship with others. Maybe it's the sins that we don't want to broadcast to our friends. A sexual sin, a lie, cheating at work, cheating at school, or just being downright mean and ornery with one another. You see, these are the sins that are not easy to forget. And our enemy, Satan, he loves to lead these shades of the past into our conscience, into our mind, pricking our hearts and damaging our minds with those darts of dripping guilt. See, Christians like to live in fear that someone will discover their past. Why? Because we've all done things we're not proud of. And, and they will work overtime trying to prove to God that they're truly repented. God, I really mean it. If you would just do this, I will do this. We bargain with God. We try to build barriers against the grace of God. And we need to experience the truth of 1 John chapter 3 that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Meaning this, that if we approach God and confess the sins of the heart, we stand forgiven before him. Christians that fail to apply this are no better than our friend with the leg that was put up on the mantle, shaking a fist at his fury-preserved leg sitting on that mantle doing nothing but hurting themselves, holding on to the guilt of sin that had already been wiped away. When a lost sinner trusts Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven and the guilt is gone. The matter is completely settled forever because Christ offered a permanent pardon. And when a believer confesses their sins, God doesn't just hold on to them. He doesn't just walk around and say, man, I can't wait till they feel really bad. I'm going to whip them out and condemn them again. He forgives them because they've already been dealt with forever at the cross. The offense toward him has been taken away. The guilt before God is gone. So yes, believers, hear me on this. We need to confess. We need to repent of our sins. Christ paid a costly sacrifice for each and every one of our sins. But each sin, once it's been forgiven, needs to be left behind. Peace comes from knowing that God has given us the freedom, the forgiveness, and the life that we could not win for ourselves. Because in Christ... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I want to challenge you to walk in his peace, walk in his grace, and know that the forgiveness of sins and the freedom from guilt that can only come from him can only come from God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687.
thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.